I was angry that after all of the sexist slurs that had been thrown in my direction, to which I had not responded at all, that now there was going to be this endeavour to play gender equality back at me as an attack issue. Welcome to Rethink Moments. This is a show about big ideas and events that in some way change the way we think. And we're going inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators and innovators to explore how these moments change them. I'm your host, Rachel Botsman. It wasn't a hit up, hot, explosive kind of anger. It was a cool anger. This is Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister of Australia and now the founder of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. On October the 9th, 2012, during a now iconic Parliament session, Gillard was under attack. And every day that you, Prime Minister, run a protection racket for the current Speaker, just as you ran for months and years a protection racket for the member of Do- for Dobell, you indicate your unfitness for high office. She was accused of being responsible for the actions of Speaker Peter Slipper, who'd been sued by an aide for sexual harassment. Leader of the opposition, Tony Abbott, sensed an opportunity to take down the Prime Minister. I spent the time he was on his feet talking, jotting out handwritten notes and marshalling these sexist statements from him that I had at my disposal. And that, the weaving off my handwritten notes and the using of those statements, is the misogyny speech. I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the Government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The role of the speech was just coming to me in the moment. It wasn't second-guessed, it wasn't double-analysed, it was just coming out. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives, he needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Your routine experience as Prime Minister is that you are standing up, meeting a wall of noise, a sea of angry faces who are yelling at you. And what happened in the misogyny speech was it started like that, but ultimately the power of the speech quietened them down. And I think the penny was dropping that this had not played out the way that they had expected it to. This was an explosive moment in Australian politics and it was going to go beyond the chamber. Today on Rethink Moments, how Julia Gillard's powerful speech sparked an explosive narrative around the treatment of women in professional and public life. I walked back to my office and, you know, staff were already telling me that phones were ringing, emails were coming in, that there were emerging online reactions to it, which showed that it was going to go well beyond the parliamentary chamber, indeed well beyond Australia's shores. What happens when one moment defines your career legacy? And what does this tell us about how society values female leaders? Stay with us. I 
was living in Sydney, Australia during the time of Julia Gillard's premiership. And I distinctly remember when the portrait of her that would be displayed in Parliament was revealed in 2018. The painting captures such an interesting blend of strength, warmth and contemplation. When I look at that painting, it seems like an invitation to consider how Gillard was treated during her time in power. I was curious to know what she sees when looking at the portrait. What I see is an image that is very deliberately, distinctly different from any prime ministerial portrait that's gone before. Of course, that's true in terms of it being the portrait of the first woman, but I wanted the style of it to be incredibly different too. So I went for that close-up, hyper-realist style Uh, The artist, uh, Vincent Fantuzzo, is a remarkable artist and I think he's captured me well. I wanted it to be of my face, to deliberately take clothes out of the equation, uh, whereas many portraits are full body or half body and so your eyes are drawn to what people are wearing. And I did want, through that remarkable difference to all the portraits that have gone before, to invite people to reflect on what was different about my prime ministership, both in terms of what I did as prime minister, but also how I was treated as prime minister. So if there was a thought bubble, because it feels like you're thinking in that painting, what would you put in the thought bubble? Oh, I would put, please reflect, really, nothing more than that. I'm not trying to drive people to particular conclusions, but I would like people to reflect on my period, the treatment of me, and for that reflection to lead to some new resolve about treating future women in politics, in leadership generally, uh, more equitably and equally. I'm also hoping that that portrait is ultimately the first in a series of portraits of women as Prime Minister, and it will, I think, then invite people to reflect on how long it took us to have the first woman, because you will march past portrait after portrait after portrait of men before you reach mine, and then hopefully uh, when the march continues on, uh, there is a very representative number of women in Australia's future leadership. Hmm. Well, we're going to use that thought bubble, please reflect. And it's interesting because I teach at Oxford and I have to walk the halls every day where there are not many female portraits still up in the dining rooms. It is changing, but it's very slow. But the other thing that really struck me is I study trust. That's my area of expertise. And I'm really interested in gender differences around how we trust men and women. And you probably know this, that the way we think about trustworthiness in people is around capability and character. So capability is all about competence and reliability and characters about integrity and empathy. And in that portrait as well, there is this really interesting blend of sort of strength and warmth and compassion. And what I'm intrigued by is your take on this juggling act, this tension, this balance that female leaders face in being capable and confident enough to lead, but not being so tough and having to get the empathy side right so they're likeable. What's been your experience 
on this yourself and you're taking what you've seen in other female leaders of how they have to balance this capability and character side? There certainly is a tightrope and I intuitively felt it when I was Prime Minister that if you came across as too strong, people would conclude you were very hard, very unlikable. So I was always aware that there was the tightrope and coming across too strong was one side of it. The other side of it was coming across as too caring, too nice, where you would be dismissed as lightweight or perhaps not with enough backbone to do the job. I intuitively got that as Prime Minister, but in the years since, I've sort of studied the research around that. Partly I've done that in my role with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Partly I did it uh, to write a chapter on gender in my memoir, My Story, but then much more deeply to co-author with my great friend Ngozi Okonjiri-Wheeler, currently the leader of the World Trade Organization, to write our book on women and leadership, where we delved into the research and interviewed eight women leaders and discussed very directly with them how they felt about this tightrope. And every one of them said that it was in their mind as they went out and spoke as leaders, acted as leaders, were received as leaders. They always knew that it was there. And that, I think, is an extra pressure on the shoulders of women that simply doesn't exist for men because we don't have the same requirements in our brains, the same gender stereotyping when we look at male leaders. So it is enough for a man to be strong. And if he is strong, we are very likely to conclude he is also quite likable. Whereas for women, if a woman is strong, then we will quickly conclude she is hard and unlikable. And that's why the tightrope exists. And in this research you've been doing, because it's so interesting that people often conflate with men in particular confidence and capability. Really confident, must be capable, but that forgiveness is not given to women. Is that something you're seeing in the research that confidence can be used as a mask for capability, but women don't get to play that card? No, they don't. Uh, and there is a wonderful book about this by an academic, Thomas Chamaro Premusic, who digs into the fact that we are absolute suckers, all of us, because we all have these gender stereotypes in the back of our brains. We are absolute suckers for concluding that a confident, charismatic man is a competent leader. And Thomas does all of the dig to show actually that confidence and charisma are not correlated with good leadership outcomes. But I think that is our historic model of leadership, someone with a lot of front, a lot of swagger, someone with the charm to take others with them. And we just continue to apply that template even though in this very fractious, difficult world, actually the person who knows they don't know, who is prepared to reach out and rely on the expertise of others, who's prepared to consult, who is prepared to think a second time, is more likely to be the better leader. These three words, I don't know, humility. I think it's one of the most underrated leadership qualities that it's actually a superpower when it comes to trust once you've established your capability yet it seems like leaders are very afraid to say I don't know I'm not sure I don't have the answer 
And it's been interesting watching Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern during the pandemic and Angela Merkel have a very different take on this, like exhibit humility in very different ways. What's your observations of the role of humility and leadership and how we need to think differently about that? I think for many leaders in the public eye and particularly for politicians, for presidents and prime ministers who ultimately need to carry the electorate with them, there is often a divide between the humility behind closed doors where they will say to their team or their colleagues, I don't know, I've got to think on it, don't press me on this now, compared with the sort of bravado they feel the need to show to the public. And I think that is, in fact, not necessarily because they worry that the public would be discomforted if they said, I don't know, but they worry about the media storm it would create. And I think in the face of the pandemic, doubt and uncertainty was given more licence and more space because everybody got it, you know, every journalist, every commentator got it, that this was a new virus, a new phenomenon, and anybody who said, gee, I've got this, I absolutely know everything about COVID-19, was nowhere near telling the truth because it was Mm. impossible to know everything. But in most circumstances, that political space is not given. So a leader who says in respect of a question about the economy or social security policy, what are you going to do about homelessness or whatever, who responds with an I don't know, I think will be pilloried. And so part of what we need to do is as followers, uh, to the extent that all of us look to some leaders in our lives, political leaders, corporate leaders, civil society leaders, and the like, all of us to say, I would value it if you let me see your doubt. I describe humility as a confident relationship with what we don't know. Humility is when we take time to sit with our doubts, when we slow down and challenge assumptions. Just think of what can flow from more humble leadership, sincerity, fairness, truthfulness, and most of all, trust. I wondered if Julia sees this trait in other female leaders. I certainly think Jacinda Ardern is showing a new style and a new style for a woman leader. And she's very clear that she's had the ability to be a different kind of leader partly personality, that's how she's built, but that she's had the terrain to do it because she is the third woman to lead her country. So there's only Iceland and New Zealand that have had three women leaders. And so she's very conscious that in New Zealand, the question, can a woman lead, which is, I think, the often unvoiced but central question when a woman first comes to a leadership role, can a woman lead? That question in New Zealand has been asked and answered. There is no doubt. Everybody knows women can do this job. Women have done this job. And so because that question is asked and answered, then Jacinta has had the ability to go to the next question, which is, how do I want to lead? I don't have to prove that I can do this in the same old style. I can actually 
uh, think and and do this differently. I can reflect more of my personality and predispositions to lead with empathy and kindness than perhaps if she'd been the first woman. You know, you made me think about something I hadn't thought about before with Jacinda in, in New Zealand is actually the capability side can be established by people who've come before you. It doesn't have to be with the individual. That's actually giving her the permission to be a different type of leader. So narrative and media narrative. One of the things that struck me about your leadership and your legacy as Prime Minister is that the speech, which we're going to get to about misogyny, has overshadowed what you achieved. You achieved so much. I remember like the National Disability Scheme, the carbon tax, the the carbon pricing, the new funding for education. These weren't easy pieces of legislation. And I wondered, how does that feel that this moment, which is an amazing moment in itself, has come in many ways to define your legacy, which is a character moment, not a capability moment? Yes, this is a very vexed topic for me in some ways. There, <laughs> When I came out of politics and in the years that immediately followed, I'd have to say I did have a little bit of resentment that all of my time in politics apparently came down to one speech. And it coincided with a period in my life when I was travelling far more routinely overseas than I ever had at any other stage in my life. And understandably, you know, if I was pounding down a street in the UK or in the US or whatever, if someone rushed up to talk to me about politics, they were rushing up because they'd watched the misogyny speech. And I did have this sort of, you know, I'm very happy to talk about it, but, you know, I was kind of in politics for a decade and a half and did uh, more things than just this speech. But I've got to the stage now where I'm reconciled with the fact that it will be the thing that is most known about me internationally. The fact that I was the first woman to lead Australia will be the opening line of my obituary. And that is what it is. And really, the task for me is to build on that in the sense of I don't want to endlessly be a raconteur about my own life. I'm not that interested in that. But I am interested in bringing uh, reflections about my past experiences, including the speech, to the contemporary conversation as a way of hopefully energising that conversation, shining a light on what it means to call out sexism and misogyny and to help be part of creating a growing wave of change for gender equality. Time for a quick break. The themes that would come to a head in Gillard's speech have very much been bubbling since she assumed office as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia on June the 4th, 2010. She was regularly branded a liar, a witch and a bitch by the opposition and by sections of the Australian media. It was shocking and diabolical. Reading the newspapers, I often wondered how on earth Julia Gillard got up in the morning to face the media and the public, let alone continue to lead in such a decisive way. Fast forward to 2012, and the Peter Slipper scandal had given Gillard's rivals, most notably Tony Abbott, a new angle for the attacks. 
I knew that given this was the political crisis of the day, that I would be getting questions about Peter Slipper, I'd be getting questions about sexism, and there would be an endeavour to paint me as a hypocrite on all of these issues because I'd supported Peter Slipper even though I could not have known about these text messages at the time. Question time is standard daily procedure in the Australian Parliament, where the government is held to account by questions from other parties. It's political theatre, or a circus, depending on the day, with leaders often strutting their stuff and the opposition jeering and jibing to embarrass the sitting government. The more you sledge, the more you're applauded. But on this occasion, Gillard was prepared to go on the offensive. And so every day in the lead up to question time, I would work with my staff. Uh, So I asked them to get me the leader of the opposition's various sexist statements, and he had made a number of them, uh, because I was going to use those as ammunition when the questions came. I mean, as it turned out, when we went into the parliament for what should have been the start of question time, instead of asking questions, the opposition leader jumped to his feet and moved a motion. And so there was an immediate debate. He spoke first. And what has come to be known as the misogyny speech is my immediate reply. So I spent the time he was on his feet talking, jotting out handwritten notes and marshalling these sexist statements from him that I had at my disposal. And that, the weaving of my handwritten notes and the using of those statements, is the misogyny speech. It's incredible that it wasn't scripted. I think that's an assumption that many people make, that it was a strategy that you came up with your team and it was carefully scripted and it was rehearsed. But standing up, what did you feel inside if you had to pick an emotion? If I had to pick an emotion, I would have said cool anger. You know, I was angry that after all of the sexist slurs that had been thrown in my direction to which I had not responded at all, that now there was going to be this endeavour to play gender equality back at me as an attack issue. I was angry about that. But it wasn't a het up, hot, explosive kind of anger. It was a cool anger. And I think that it was a cool and indeed kind of analytical anger uh, shows in the speech. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition went outside in the front of Parliament and stood next to a sign that said, Ditch the Witch. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition stood next to a sign that described me as a man's bitch. I was offended by those things. Something I've always found fascinating about the speech is how Gillard used a very personal I, rather than talking in more generalised terms. It was a nuanced but powerful shift in language that resonated deeply with the lived experiences of women across the political spectrum and around the world. It's not something we often hear from political leaders, but was it deliberate? I can't say to you that any of it, you know, was a was a, a conscious decision. I mean, you know, people talk about flow states and all the rest of it. I'm I'm never any good at all of um, that kind of stuff. I I haven't delved into it as much as I possibly should to understand it all. But to the extent that I've any insight into what people mean by flow states, I think I was in one. The role of the speech was just coming to me in the moment 
it wasn't second guessed, it wasn't double analysed, it was just coming out. Who are you looking at? Because it's interesting on the videotape, like Julia Bishop is literally cannot look at you. Like she she's like down on her phone and then you can see in her body language and Tony Abbott looks just like a schoolboy. Who were you looking at? Well, they were like that at the end, but at the start, uh, you know, Tony Abbott and the entire sort of front bench and most of his back bench uh, were doing what they normally do in question time and in hot debates, which is that they were hurling interjections and general forms of abuse. I mean, getting up in the Australian Parliament, it's a robust environment. And so, you know, your routine experience as Prime Minister is that you are standing up meeting a wall of noise. And what happened in the misogyny speech was it started like that, but ultimately the power of the speech quietened them down. And I think the penny was dropping that this had not played out the way that they had expected it to. And, you know, then people kind of dropped their heads and started looking at their phones. If people aren't doing the wall of noise, they're doing the I'm not even listening to you to try and take the energy out of the room. In that moment, Gillard had no idea the speech would become a huge cultural marker in Australian politics and society at large. But as stunned spectators in the chamber that day, her colleagues, Wayne Swan and Anthony Albanese, knew they had witnessed something significant. I mean, I gave the speech and because it was sort of cool anger, You know, when I sat down, I knew it was a forceful speech because the opposition had dropped their heads, but I had no sense that it was going to resonate beyond the parliament and that we'd be talking about it here 10 years later. And I don't think, to be fair, either Wayne or Anthony had that sense either, but they had more of a sense than me that this was an explosive moment in Australian politics, that it was going to go beyond the chamber. Almost... Immediately on leaving the chamber, you know, I walked back to my office and, you know, staff were already telling me that, you know, phones were ringing, emails were coming in, that there were online uh, reactions to it, which showed that it was going to go well beyond the parliamentary chamber, indeed, well beyond Australia's shores. The dictionary definition of misogyny was rewritten and the moment was voted the most memorable ever on TV in Australia. In 2019, the speech was catapulted back into mainstream consciousness through a series of viral TikTok videos. I remember being surprised, bemused, uh, because I hadn't expected it. Um, Obviously um, glad in the sense that, you know, having called out sexism and misogyny that strongly, it was gratifying to have the sense that people had heard that call. But I didn't expect any of that. If you'd asked me what, you know, and effectively Wayne and Albo in our whispered conversations were were canvassing this with me, if you'd asked me immediately after I sat down, I would have said, you know, I'm off to the rest of my day now. I've got letters to sign, policies to think about, meetings to go to. I would not have uh, been speculating about what would happen with the speech. Well, I hope the leader of the opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a miracle. I'm a bitch. I'm a boss.
Many listeners have probably seen the TikTok videos. And, you know, we started this conversation with you with the speech bubble, pause and reflect. I have to admit, I was watching some of them and I was laughing. And have you seen the one where at the end it plays a soundtrack? I'm a bitch, I'm a boss, and she puts the coat on. And then I thought, do you know what? Is that okay? Because the soundtrack is saying, I'm a bitch and a boss. And so is that woman reclaiming the word bitch? Or do we need to pause and reflect in how even people who clearly respect you and are trying to emulate that moment in some way are still reinforcing the stereotype? It's an interesting question. I've uh, met that young woman virtually, Abby Hansen, and I did uh, say to her, I wish I'd had a coat to swish the way she did. (laughs) She was a good swisher. It was a very good swish. I'm in two minds about uh, this reinforcement of stereotypes um, because, yes, you know, the stereotype we are trying to get out of people's heads is that women leaders are necessarily bitches. You know, that goes back to the, the things that, Uh, people unfortunately do too easily conclude about women. But I do like the fact that the energy of many of these young women is not, I want to change the stereotype in your head by rational discussion and analysis and research of that stereotype. I'm a big believer in all of those things, and that's what we do at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. But there's an energy beyond that, which is basically, I don't care what you think. And if what you think is stupid and wrong and stereotypical, I'm not allowing you to shape my reality and my sense of self. So too bad, you know, too bad, bitch, boss, too bad. I don't care what you think. I think that that is part of a broader new energy, deep frustration from these emerging women activists. I mean, the the wave that comes off them, I think, is, I mean, for heaven's sake, haven't all of you sorted this out yet? Like, what on earth? And I love that energy. It's a, it's a positive defiance, but you know what's also beautiful about it, Julia, is it's not being afraid to use humour, which I think I, I sense, I don't know you, but I sense you're very funny. <laughs> I hope I can crack the occasional joke, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but not Australian humour I struggle with at times, but that that... Also, we don't have a place or often isn't given permission to be funny. And that's what I love seeing in this new wave of feminism, this positive defiance. And we can use humour in that sense as well. I agree with you on that. And I think, you know, people like Hannah Gadsby, an Australian, forging a new kind of comedy, which one moment is making you laugh and the next moment is punching you in the stomach about uh, some discriminatory attitude or action that is still happening in our society and you roller coaster from belly laughing to being put back on your chair going, woof, you know, wow, I that's really confronting and I've got to take that with me and I've got to think about that and then then rolls back into the laugh. And I think there is something very powerful about that style. Yes, humour, yes, playfulness. 
and a sort of devil may care, I really don't care what you think sort of attitude all rolled into one. So how have your perceptions and the problems surrounding sexism changed based on what you know now? Based on what I know now, I think some things are better and some things are worse. And of the thing that's better is we are having now very deep, very thoughtful discussions about sexism, misogyny, gender, women and leadership like this conversation. We've got the language to do it now. We've got the research that feeds the discussions And we've got the public preparedness, I think, to mobilise in the wake of these discussions. Now, when something very sexist happens to a woman in the public eye, there is instantaneously the backlash from activists, women and men who say, that's not right, that is sexist, that is misogynist, she shouldn't be treated like that. All of that is fantastic to see. What's not good is how pernicious sexism and misogyny is and when given new vehicles and new outlets, how it colonises them. And so the way in which sexist and misogynist bile has uh, colonised the online environment and made social media such an unsafe space for women, that really deeply troubles me. Last question, your rethink moment. So when you look back, you pick the time frame over your career, when you were in power. What was your rethink moment where you stopped, challenged an assumption, see something very differently? I think I've had a number of rethink moments, but possibly... The most meaningful one given the rest of my life and how it's played out was in my years post-student politics where I personally rethought who goes into politics and could it be me. And that for me wasn't just a personal set of decisions, could I do this? It was a collective engagement with other women as we sought to bust through structures and make new rules to ensure that lots of women got the opportunity to do this. And we campaigned and effectively forced the Australian Labor Party to adopt the affirmative action rule. And my life has been incredibly different because of that rethink moment. The Australian Labor Party is a much-changed political party because of that rethink moment, and Australian politics is incredibly different because of it too. If you enjoyed this episode with Julia Gillard, please do subscribe to Rethink Moments, and I'd love it if you can leave us a review too. If you want to find out more about the wonderful work that Julia is doing now, you can look up the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. I'd also recommend her book, Lessons in Leadership. It's a fascinating read. If you want to ask me questions, if you want to debate points in the show, the best way to do so is to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm just at Rachel Botsman. That way you can join the Rethink Moments newsletter where we unpack questions and challenge ideas that we've covered in this episode. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Botsman. 
And if you have other questions and ideas, please do send me an email at rachel at rethinkmoments.com. I'll speak to you soon for another episode of Rethink Moments. Rethink Moments is truly a collective effort. The show is developed and written by me, Rachel Botsman, with Will Hain and Alex Sansom. Our Rethink Moments team includes our wonderful producers, Kat Davy and Carenza Metric, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan, our researcher. Editing, mixing, and additional scripting is by our friends at Rethink Audio, Matt Hill and Anushka Tate. Sound engineering by Nick Morbath at Evolution Studios, and our original theme music is composed by Ben Sansom. And thanks to Jesse Hempel and the team at LinkedIn for all their support.